I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we follow the flow of the text to help us to connect the seemingly disconnected. We're nearing the end of the book of Numbers, and as we've talked about for some time now, the end of the book is so very similar to the beginning. The parts of this book near the extremities are rather boring in anyone's estimation. Even for those who are scholars of this work, these portions seem to be the most truly difficult to grasp hold of. And that difficulty comes from several things that occur in the text, and these things, they're multifaceted. The first is the easy bit for the layman to spot. There are very few stories in the extremity of the book. And when there are, they are hard to spot because they read like command portions, and they tend to be repetitive. In the first ten chapters, there were narratives. In chapter 7, we read of the dedication of the tabernacle. As repetitive as that chapter is, it is still a narrative chapter in that it told of what the people did. Chapter 9 featured the narrative of the men who were not able to keep the Pesach, and what was to be done about that. Chapter 10 tells of the tribes as they left their spots at the base of Mount Sinai. Each of these chapters is in fact a chapter of narrative, but the stories that they recount and the way that they are told causes them to blend in with the chapters of commands that surround them. And these narratives, frankly, they're not all that exciting. Well, here at the end of the book, we find the same thing going on. There are, in fact, narratives nestled into the midst of all of the chapters on commands. And we're going to encounter one of those today. And that leads us to the other aspect of the text that makes this book difficult for everyone who encounters it. I've said it before, but this book truly seems schizophrenic in its approach to imparting information. Narratives get broken to recount commands that seem disconnected. And commands get broken up by narratives that likewise seem disconnected. And in this, it is difficult to discover and to trace the train of thoughts that occur in the book. The flow, as I termed it, when we were just beginning our study of this book. Instead, it's all too easy to just throw our hands up in frustration and simply declare that this book is the catch-all for all of the stuff that just didn't fit elsewhere. But at the beginning of the book, I hope that I demonstrated that this is not the case. I attempted to demonstrate this flow of ideas that occur in the text from one end to the other. A flow that is subtle, and it's easy to overlook, and frankly, perhaps... Perhaps I even imposed it on the text in my search for a pattern. I'll let you decide that. Well, here at the end of the book, when we encounter the same way of imparting information, we discover the same thing. There is a flow that strings the text together through themes that's not always obvious. At first, it seemed just like the beginning, a census. But as we proceeded, we discovered that there was a different purpose for this census. The purpose this time being inheritance. Who gets how much when they finally make it to the land? 
And then the text shifts to the holy days and sacrifices. Or is it really talking about Hashem's inheritance? The things that the people owe him when he finally places them in the land that he promised them. This idea of inheritance and standing to gain by the taking of the land being a lesson that reveals a two-way street. And this two-way street reveals something about the God of Israel that sets him apart from all other gods. The God of Israel is committed to a relationship. A fact that we saw clearly in the book of Exodus is the relationship was steeped in the metaphor of husband and wife. But here that give and take is highlighted, but we only catch hold of it when we see the flow in the text. And that brings us to this Parsha. Again, we're forced to scratch our heads. How do these chapters fit? A chapter about vows and a chapter about battle, victory, and plunder. Well, the answer might surprise you because these chapters do continue the thoughts from the previous weeks. Why is it that Israel stands to inherit the land? Because it was promised. Because Hashem vowed that he would give it to them. And so Israel, as his image bearers, are to act like Hashem, carrying out all that they say that they will do, fulfilling vows and promises when we make them. And then in the second chapter for today, we see this promise in action, a military action against a massively superior force. And in the end, victory, not a single life lost among the warriors of Israel. Hashem has promised to give them the land. Hashem has promised to fight for them. He is keeping his promises, says chapter 31. Now, how about you? Are you doing all that you have vowed to do? says chapter 30. And that is where this Parsha begins. So let's read these chapters and then discuss the specifics of these chapters and then tie them both together. Numbers 30 and 31. And Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the word which Hashem has commanded. When a man vows a vow to Hashem or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he does not break the word he does according to all that comes out of his mouth. Or if a woman vows a vow to Hashem and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father has kept silent towards her, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself stands. But if her father forbids her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself stand, and Hashem pardons her because her father has forbidden her. But if she at all belongs to a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it, and he has kept silent towards her on the day that he hears, then her vow shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself do stand. But if her husband forbids her on the day that he hears it, then he has nullified her vows which she vowed, and the rash utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and Hashem pardons her. But any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself stands against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, and her husband heard it and has kept silent toward her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself stands. But if her husband clearly nullified them on the day that he heard them, then whatever came from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it does not stand. 
Her husband has nullified them, and Hashem pardons her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her being, let her husband confirm it or let her husband nullify it. But if her husband is altogether silent at her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her being, let her husband confirm it or let her husband nullify it. But if her husband is altogether silent at her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all her agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he kept silent towards her on the day that he heard. But if he nullifies them after he has heard, then he shall bear her crookedness. These are the laws which Hashem commanded Moshe between a man and his wife, and between a father and his daughter in her youth, and in her father's house. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Take vengeance for the children of Israel on the Midianites. After that you are to be gathered to your people. And Moshe spoke to the people, saying, Arm some of yourselves for the campaign, and let them go out against the Midianites to take vengeance for Hashem on Midian. Send a thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel for the campaign. So there were supplied from the tribes of Israel one thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed ones for the campaign. And Moshe sent them on the campaign, one thousand from each tribe, them and Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest on the campaign, with the holy utensils and the trumpets for sounding in his hand. And they fought against the Midianites as Hashem commanded Moshe and killed all the males. And they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were pierced, Evi and Rechem and Sur and Chur and Reva, the five kings of Midian, and they killed Balaam the son of Beor with the sword. And the sons of Israel took all the women of Midian captive with their little ones, and took as spoil all their livestock and all their possessions. And they burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt, and all their settlements. And they took all the spoil and all the booty, both man and beast, and they brought the captives and the booty and the spoil to Moshe, and to Eleazar the priest, and to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the desert plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho. And Moshe and Eleazar the priest and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. But Moshe was wroth with the officers of the army, with the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who had come from the campaign. And Moshe said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, they are the ones who caused the children of Israel through the word of Bilam to trespass against Hashem in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of Hashem. And now kill every male among the little ones, and every woman who has known a man by lying with a man you shall kill. But keep alive for yourselves all the female children who have not known a man by lying with a man. And you camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any being and whoever has touched any slain, cleanse yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. And cleanse every garment and every object of leather and all the works of goat's hair and every object of wood. And Eleazar the priest said to the men of the campaign who went to the battle, This is the law of the Torah which Hashem commanded Moshe. Only the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and the tin and the lead, every object that passes through fire you put through the fire, and it shall be clean. Only let it be cleansed with water for uncleanness, and whatever does not pass through the fire you pass through the water. And you shall wash your garments on the seventh day, and be clean, and afterwards come into the camp. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Count up the plunder that was taken of man and of beast, you and Eleazar the priest, and the heads of the fathers of the congregation. And you shall divide the plunder into two parts between those who took part in the battle, who went out on the campaign and all the congregation, and set aside a levy for Hashem on the men of the battle who went out into the campaign, one out of every five hundred of man and of the cattle and of the donkeys and of the sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to Hashem.
And from the children of Israel's half you shall take one of every fifty of man and cattle and of donkeys and of the sheep and of all the livestock and give them to the Levites guarding the duty of the dwelling place of Hashem. And Moshe and Eleazar the priests did as Hashem commanded Moshe. And the booty remaining from the plunder which the people in the campaign had taken was 675,000 sheep and 72,000 cattle and 61,000 donkeys and 32,000 human beings in all of women who had not known a man by lying with a man. And the half of the portion for those who went on the campaign was in number 337,500 sheep. And the levy unto Hashem of the sheep was 675. And the cattle there were 36,000, of which the levy unto Hashem was 72. And of the donkeys were 30,500, of which the levy unto Hashem was 61. And the human beings were 16,000, of which the levy unto Hashem was 32 beings. So Moshe gave the levy, which was the contribution unto Hashem, to Eleazar the priest, as Hashem commanded Moshe. And from the children of Israel's half, which Moshe divided from the men who campaigned. Now the half belonging to the congregation was 337,500 sheep, and 36,000 cattle, and 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 human beings. Then Moshe took from the children of Israel half, one out of every fifty, drawn from man and beast, and gave them to the Levites who guarded the duty of the dwelling place of Hashem, as Hashem commanded Moshe. And the officers, who were over thousands of the campaign, and the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, came near to Moshe. And they said to Moshe, Your servants have taken account of the fighting men under your command, and not a man of us is missing. So we have brought an offering for Hashem. What every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets and bracelets, and signet rings, and earrings, and necklaces, to make atonement for ourselves before Hashem. And Moshe and Eleazar the priest received the gold from them, all the fashioned ornaments, and all the gold of the offering that they presented to Hashem from the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. The men of the campaign had taken spoil, every man for himself. And Moshe and Eleazar the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and brought it into the tent of appointment as a remembrance for the children of Israel before Hashem. In the center of the book of Numbers, we read a lot of narratives. I know, not new information. But in these chapters, we discovered that in each case leading up to the rebellion of Korah, the failure of the people was a failure of the tongue. The mistakes that the people made and the causes of the plagues that beset them was because of the way that the people spoke about the things of God. With their mouth, they slandered the daily gift of manna, with their mouth they slandered the leadership of Israel, and with their mouths they slandered the power of God and the plan that God had to bring them into the land that he had promised to them. And these words culminated in a very real rebellion of the people against everything that Hashem was doing for them. And in this we saw that it was true what James says in James 3. James 3, 1-9 through not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we shall receive greater judgment. For we all stumble in many matters. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the entire body. Look, we put bits into the mouths of horses for them to obey us, and we turn their body. Look at the ships too, although they are so big and are driven by strong winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot intends." So too the tongue is a little member, yet boasts greatly. See how a little fire kindles a great forest fire. And the tongue is a fire, 
the world of unrighteousness among our members the tongue is set, the one defiling the entire body and setting on fire the wheel of life, and it is set on fire by Gehinnom. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man is able to tame the tongue. It is unruly, evil, filled with deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Then later in the chapter, James states this in James chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. But if you have bitter jealousy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast against and lie against the truth. This is not the wisdom coming down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and self-seeking are, there is confusion in every foul deed. But the wisdom from above is first clean, then peaceable, gentle, ready to obey, filled with compassion and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Bitterness, jealousy, self-seeking, these things lead a person to speak lies against the truth. The very position that Israel found themselves spewing in during their travels. But the tongue is useful for more than simply tearing down things and speaking blessings and curses. The tongue is also useful for building up, for encouragement and peacemaking. And sometimes that takes the form of promises made to others or to God. Speaking of your future intentions in a matter and causing others to depend on you because of the words that you have spoken. Doing this can cause others to overextend themselves and put themselves in a place of vulnerability because of the words that were spoken were taken in truth. If Israel had gone on conquest because of the promise of God and God had not met them there, they would have indeed been wiped out. Their trust in the promises that had been made to them would have led to their destruction. And that same is true for us when we make promises to each other. Not living up to the promises that you make can lead to the destruction of others. And so as Israel is on the cusp of the conquest, Hashem exhorts Israel to be faithful to their word, because it is the word of a promise that has led Israel to this place in the first place. And as image bearers and priests to the world for Hashem, it is imperative that those who bear the name of Hashem act in His image. And it is this that's being spoken of in the third command. Exodus 20, verse 7, You do not bring the name of Hashem your Elohim to naught, for Hashem does not leave the one unpunished who brings his name to naught. When you swear, especially if you swear by the name of Hashem, you are entangling yourself with Hashem in matters of faithfulness. And since He is faithful, it's vital that you be faithful when you take His name as guarantee for a promise. And that's how chapter 30 opens. When a man vows a vow to Hashem, when a person promises Hashem that he will do something for him, or when a man swears by an oath, which is a pact, agreement, obligation, a binding agreement, or even a covenant, then he must do according to all that he has said he will do. Everything that a person says that they are going to do, they should be careful to do in all cases. And as we see throughout scripture, vows themselves can lead to all sorts of negative consequences. There is the case of the vow that was taken with a good heart, but based on the future actions of others, which by nature can be unpredictable. 
Judges chapter 11, verse 30 through 40. And Jephthah made a vow to Hashem and said, If you give the children of Ammon into my hands, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall belong to Hashem, and I shall offer it up as an ascending offering. And Jephthah then passed on towards the children of Ammon to fight against them, and Hashem gave them into his hands, and he struck them from Aroar as far as Minnith twenty cities, and to Abel Karamim, with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were humbled before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to his house at Mitzpah, and saw his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. Now except for her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to be when he saw her that he tore his garments and said, O oh, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. And I, I have given my word to Hashem, and I am unable to turn back. And she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to Hashem, do to me according to what you have gone out of your mouth, because Hashem has taken vengeance for you upon your enemies, the children of Ammon. And she said to her father, Let this be done for me. Let me alone for two months, and let me go and wander the mountains and bewail my maidenhood, my friends and I. Then he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her maidenhood on the mountains. And it came to be at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she knew no man. And it came to be a statute in Israel that the daughters of Israel went every year for four days to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. A rash vow taken without thinking of the cost that might be associated with it. A vow that cost a man his own daughter. Because the law says that if you take a vow, you must be sure to keep it and to do all that has come out of your mouth. Then there's the case of the covenant made without checking all the facts presented with the party that you're covenanting with. Joshua 9, 3-21 through And the inhabitants of Gibbon heard that Joshua had done to Jericho and I, and they acted slyly, and they went and pretended to be envoys, and they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, and old and parched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry, it was crumbs. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far land, and now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Chivites, it could be that you dwell in our midst, so how do we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said, Who are you, and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a land very far off your servants have come, because of the name of Hashem your God. For we have heard the report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he has done to the two king of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sichon the king of Cheshbon, and Og the king of Bashan, who is at Ashtarot. And the man of Israel took some of their food, but they did not ask the mouth of Hashem. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it came to be, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. And the children of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibbon, and Kephirah, and Beirot, and Kiriath, Yaarim. But the children of Israel did not strike them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by Hashem, God of Israel. And all the congregation grumbled against the rulers. But all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by Hashem, God of Israel, and we are unable to touch them now. Let us do this to them. We shall keep them alive, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. And the rulers said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and drawers of water for all the congregation, as the rulers had promised them. 
an oath sworn out of trust, leading to the breaking of a command that had been explicitly given. The Hivites of Gibeon were to be driven outward killed alongside everyone else in the land, and yet because of an oath taken in the name of Hashem without first checking the facts, Israel was prevented from carrying out the will of Hashem. And then there is the oath taken in bad faith, the promise given in order to appear righteous or pious, and then not carried out. Acts chapter 5, 1-11 but a certain man named Hananiah, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back from the price, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the feet of the emissaries. But Kepha said, Hananiah, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your authority? Why have you conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Hananiah, hearing the words, fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all those who heard of this. But the young men arose and wrapped him up, carrying him out, and buried him. And it came to be about three hours later that his wife came in, not knowing what had taken place. And Kepha responded to her, Say to me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So Kepha said to her, Why have you agreed to try the spirit of Hashem? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon all the assembly and upon all who heard this. All throughout scripture we find people taking oaths, making vows, and cutting covenants, and more often than not the vows that are taken lead to death, destruction, and ultimate failure. And it is these examples that lead Yeshua to making this statement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 33-37. Again you heard it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to Hashem. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, neither because it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor swear by your head, because you are not able to make one hair black or white. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no, and what goes beyond these is from the wicked one. Vows are dangerous. Oaths are dangerous. And words are powerful. Our world is full of proverbs that declare this truth. The pen is mightier than the sword, says Shakespeare. All I need is a piece of all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, then I can turn the world upside down, says Friedrich Nietzsche. Don't ever diminish the power of words. Words move hearts and hearts move limbs. Hamza Yusuf. Speech has power. Words do not fade. What starts out as a sound ends up in a deed. Abraham Joshua Herschel. And on and on, the philosophers have opined on this fact for millennia. Words have power, and for even longer the Bible has recognized this fact. Proverbs twelve eighteen: rash speaking is like piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is healing. Proverbs eighteen four: the words of a man's mouth are deep waters, the fountains of wisdom is a flowing stream. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those loving it eat its fruit. Or John 6.63, 6, 
It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh does not profit at all. The words that I speak to you are spirit and are life. And we don't have to take the deliberate sayings about the power of words on this fact. All we have to do is simply look at the account of creation. It was words that were used to create the world. It was words that were used to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's the word of God that is our weapon against the enemy. It is the word spoken in faith that can cause a mountain to move. It is the word of our testimony that will overcome in the last days. Words are powerful and so care is to be taken with our words, especially when those words are steeped in the form of a promise or a vow especially when they cause others to rely on your actions that you may or may not fulfill. Faithfulness is important because our God is faithful. And so when we get to the bulk of chapter 30, we read of several special cases in which a vow can be overturned. And this description has caused many feminists and even modern people who do not consider themselves to be feminists to look down on the Bible because they believe that this allowance for a man to overturn the vow of a woman to demonstrate that the Bible sees women as less than men. But if we consider this, we may find that this is quite the opposite. Why is it that a man can overturn the vow of his daughter or his wife? It's because men depend on women to keep the household running. A a woman's too important to lose to a rash vow. But men? Eh, whatever. They made a rash vow, let them go do their thing. But what this chapter helps to establish is the proper chain of command in the family unit. There must be a leader in the family. Someone has to take charge and make the decisions. And according to the Bible, it's the man that was wired to be the leader and to project power out into the world. And it's the responsibility of the women to focus inward and bring stability in the home to the man so that he can focus outward. Not only Does the Bible describe the family dynamics this way? Our biology reflects this as well. Men focused outward, women focused inward. Men providing physical strength and security, women providing emotional strength and security. Men building and making, women nurturing and creating. Now this does not make one sex lesser than the other or less valuable. It makes both valuable, and it assigns roles and responsibilities to both of the sexes, both of the genders, and yes, there are only two. And this role dynamic is of utmost importance for the functioning of the family unit, which is the foundation of our society. And Paul speaks on these roles as well, and he reveals something a bit more. Ephesians 5, 22-23 If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard it. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the master, because the husband is head of the wife, as also the Messiah is head of the assembly, and he is savior of the body. But as the assembly is subject to the Messiah, so also let their wives be to their own husbands in every respect. Husbands, love your wives as Messiah also did love the assembly and gave himself for it, in order to set it apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word in order to present it to himself, a splendid assembly, not having spot or recall or any of this sort, but that it might be holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but feeds and cherishes it, as also the master does the assembly, 
because we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great secret, but I speak concerning Messiah and the assembly. However, you too, everyone, let each one love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she fears her husband. And in this is one of the most important relationship dynamics that can be found in a marriage. Men, love your wives. Give yourself for them. Give of your time and your energy and spend it with them. Too many men demonstrate love for their wives by going out and earning money and in the end being absent all day long. This is not what is meant by giving of yourself to your wife. It means spending time with her when you could be doing something else. It means listening to her talk even after 20 years when you've heard all of her stories and her mannerisms may even grate on you a bit. It means speaking to her in the language of love that she understands. It means possibly sacrificing on the great job that would advance your career but will take all of your time so that you can take one that may not pay as much or provide as much opportunity of advancement but allows you to spend time with your wife and your children. And it means keeping lines of communication open. Without communication, there's no relationship. Now, women, this is not how you are to treat your husbands. Women, do not love your husbands. Men don't hear or understand the language of love as you want to express it. Now, hear me out, please. This does not mean that you should not tell him that you love him. I'm saying that the way that men feel love is different. This entire passage explores this dynamic, but verse 33 explicitly states it. Men understand, as Paul puts it, phobio, fear. Now, this word can mean terror, but that's not what a woman should feel for her husband. Rather, this word can also mean amazement or awe, veneration, reverence, and deference. In short, it means respect. Men need to be respected. A man who does not feel respect from his wife will seek that respect elsewhere. If he goes to work in a position of power, he will find respect there. Men are wired not only to crave respect, men need respect. And they are to find it from their wives. The respect for a man should begin in the home. And women, if your husband is not respectable, respect him anyway. You may just find that when given respect from the one closest to him, he may seek to become respectable to the one closest to him. And that means allowing him to be the one who leads in all things. And this chapter demonstrates that God respects that authority. God respects the authority of men that he has placed over women. If a woman makes a vow, even a vow to God himself, and the husband does not agree with the vow, God backs off and allows the wishes of the husband or the father to rule the day. An aspect of authority bestowed by one with authority to a subordinate. In a healthy use of power, the one who is given authority over others allows that person to exercise their authority over those others, even if they don't always agree. And there's something 
very profound in this that we should really sit and meditate on. So while chapter 30 speaks on the power of words and the necessity to remain faithful to what you say you will do, chapter 31 demonstrates God's faithfulness to his own words. Israel is to take vengeance on the Midianites. And verse 3 states that this vengeance is to be taken on behalf of Hashem. And to exact this vengeance, Israel is to choose 12,000 warriors to prosecute the war, 1,000 from each tribe. Now, as I read this, the 144,000 from Revelation come to mind, 12,000 men from each tribe that are set aside for a purpose, uh, but we're not going to get there today, or perhaps ever. So why was this limited force to go and destroy the people who had led Israel astray? Why not send everyone and let everyone get a taste of vengeance? It was because Israel needed a concrete example of God's faithfulness. They needed to see with their own eyes that Hashem fought for them. And what better way than to send a woefully outmatched force into a nation to destroy it and have every man return? Every man. Not a single loss. Israel needed to know before going into Canaan that it was not the size of their army that would win the war to come. If every warrior in Israel had been sent to take Midian, then Israel would have believed that it was their numbers that had won the day. And once in Canaan, they would have doubted once again when faced with giants and walls and overwhelming odds, they would have given in to their fear. But with this example, the small force from every tribe, 1,000 men in each tribe to share the story, 1,000 men with a testimony of how Hashem protected and strengthened and with the split of the plunder, everyone in Israel got a piece of plunder as their own that they could hold as a reminder, as a visible testimony that could be held and provide courage when things looked hopeless in the future. And this gives us just a glimpse of the size of Midian that was defeated in this action. Five kings defeated, every city destroyed, all the males dead, no possibility of ever causing Israel to stumble in this way again payback for the curse that Midian had brought down on Israel. And among those killed, Balaam, the son of Beor, the prophet who went to Midian and Moab to attempt to curse Israel. The reward that he sought of notoriety and fortune dashed to pieces and destroyed. In the end, the honor that he sought for himself turned to shame, and the fortune that he sought to secure now resting with Israel. And when they returned, they had to wait outside the camp. They were unclean. The things that they had captured and plundered were unclean. Every item had to be cleansed, and the men had to go through the red heifer cleansing ceremony. And the women? Well, Moses was angry at their return. They spared all of the women, even those who had been part of the downfall of Israel. These women who had not fought against Israel with arms, but had fought against Israel with their bodies. These women were combatants in their own way, and so they too had to die. And so every woman who had ever been with a man was a danger. They were one with the men of Midian. And the command goes forth to count up the plunder and then to distribute in Israel in a specific way. And from the plunder, we catch a glimpse of just how large the nation of Midian was at this time. And in the counting of the plunder, we catch a dichotomy, a subtle dig at the enemies of God. A few chapters back, we read of the census that was taken of Israel. 
The census taken of Israel provided count for all of the men of a certain age. This passage spoke of the honor that belonged to these warriors. But in this chapter, we see a contrast. With Midian, all that's left after the battle that's counted is the young women, the little girls who had not been intimate with a man. A stark contrast and one that was designed in this ancient literature to highlight the shame of Midian and their defeat and to contrast it with the might of Israel. The utter and complete shame as their goods passed into the hands of Israel and their girls passed into the service of Israel to be raised in Israel and to marry their sons. And this was a way of wiping out Midian in a very real way without completely destroying the population. And of these unmarried virgins, there were 32,000 girls added to Israel. And sheep? 675,000 sheep, more sheep than there were men in Israel. 72,000 heads of cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and all of the gold and silver and clothing and other valuable goods that the soldiers could find and carry. Now this plunder did not belong solely to those who went and fought. It was to be divided among all of Israel. Half of the plunder went to the warriors, and half of the plunder went to the people. And from those halves a tribute of sorts was paid to the representatives of Hashem among them. From the warriors, one out of every five hundred of every person, sheep, donkey, or cattle was given to one man, Eleazar, the high priest. And from the plunder that went to the people, one out of every fifty persons or animals was being given to the tribe of Levi. And it's only in the end that we learn that not a man was lost. Twelve thousand men versus five armies and not a single casualty. 12,000 men bringing back 32,000 little girls, and not a single man was lost. Consider the size of the force that they faced. And out of their gratitude, the leaders of these warriors, they gave up every item that they had plundered that was made of gold, and they donated all of the gold to the service of the tabernacle. These chapters are profound in their depth and application. Hashem is faithful in his promises. He promised Israel that he would give them the land. He promised Israel that he would fight for them. He promised Israel that they would be victorious. And he promised that they would prosper. In this chapter, we find that Hashem was true to his promises. He said that he would do these things and then he did them. But Israel? Israel failed. They had been faithless all along. How can this be? How can God remain faithful to a people who had been faithless? 2 Timothy 2, 11-13 Trustworthy is the word, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we also shall reign with him. If we deny him, he also shall deny us. If we are not trustworthy, he remains trustworthy. It's impossible for him to deny himself. The word of Hashem is trustworthy, and he remains faithful even when we are faithless. Why? Because it's his nature. He cannot deny himself, and his nature is immutable. And because he is faithful, then we too should be faithful. And in doing so, there is great reward. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of Hashem diligently search through all the earth to show himself to be strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect to him.
You have acted foolishly in this, so from now on you shall have battles. Psalm 37, 28-29 For Hashem loves justice and does not forsake his faithful ones. They shall be guarded forever, but the seed of the wrongdoers is cut off. The righteous shall inherit the earth and dwell in it forever. Proverbs 28.20 A man of truth has many blessings, but one in a hurry to be rich does not go unpunished. These are the promises that are connected to the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness to your own word. And these promises are not just so many words or just a bunch of wind. They're certain and true because they are the promises of God. And when the promises of God don't appear to be forthcoming, when it seems as if he is not being faithful in his word, understand that there's likely something you're missing. Because God did not appear faithful to those who were in Egypt. God did not appear faithful to those who died before reaching the land. God does not appear to be pouring out blessing on those in the wilderness. And God did not appear faithful when Israel was forced to turn away and go a different direction. There have been throughout this entire wilderness experience of Israel times that God did not appear faithful. And yet he was. In his own timing and according to his own righteousness and judgment. And it was the doubting of God's faithfulness that's gotten Israel in trouble since the beginning. Because God does not want you to have your every whim and desire, and those who expect such things from God will falter and fail. God, like a good father, seeks to train up his children in the way that they should go. And that means punishment, and perhaps deprivation for a time and for a purpose. God does not desire to give you your every wish. God desires to build you up into his image, and in his image, your desires will align with his. And when this happens, you will see God be faithful. You will look back on your experience and you will have seen his faithfulness. You will have tokens and memories of his faithfulness, and you will in turn seek to be faithful. So if there is a thing that you have promised to do and you have not, it's not too late to do it. It's not too late to pick up your faithfulness and live up to your word. To not do so is to deny the faithfulness of God and the image that you're being built up to mimic. Just as with him, our word is our bond. We should not say a thing and then not carry it out. Because our words can get us in a lot of trouble. They can pull us off of the path of life as we seek life. Or they can keep us on the path of life. So Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.